Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and welcome to the final episode of Whatever It Takes, the podcast, an introduction to the audiobook version of Stephen Stone's memoir, a book that he describes as life lessons from Degrassi and elsewhere in the world of music and television. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and maybe buy the full Whatever It Takes book, which is available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats at your favorite bookstore or digital platform. Stephen, when I did interviews at Much Music in the 80s, I'd research deeply and prepare diligently, hoping my questions would give the fans of the artist a greater understanding of the music that meant so much to them. But I always left room for asking something, no matter how obscure, that I was curious about. So, Stephen, did you have any hesitation about including one of the last chapters in this book, one that you describe as philosophical? Yeah, you know... I just feel the book would have felt incomplete to me without this chapter. It embodies some thoughts that are important to me and and, and I think worthy of sharing, even at the risk of sounding woo-woo and new agey. (laughs) Right. There may be some who, upon reading the word philosophy, head straight for the fainting couch. But I hope most will stay till the end. It's such a privilege having a forum to connect with readers and listeners. And I'm, I'm just grateful to be able to do so. This is the philosophy chapter. Not philosophy in the Aristotle or Plato sense, though I love them both, but philosophy in the sense of what drives me, Stephen Stone, and gives meaning to my life. This chapter doesn't have any famous celebrities, behind-the-scenes revelations, stories of me making a fool of myself in court, or tales of writing songs or going on adventures. This chapter combines the different beliefs and practices that drive me. The year 1964 was important not just because I saw my first rock concert, the Beatles. At least one other seminal event in my life occurred that year. My best friend's uncle and I hit it off immediately when we first met. He was a remarkable man who rarely ventured outside as he suffered from what was then called manic-depressive reaction. He was extremely bright, having retired early from a distinguished career as an inventor and engineer for a large chemical company. We immediately found some common interests, among them a mutual love of cryptic crossword puzzles. It's not that we spent a long time together. I had at most a half-dozen relatively brief visits with him. But in one of our final interactions, he had a gift for me. Before revealing the gift, he told the following story. When I was much younger, I had an odd dream that repeated itself over several nights. In the dream, I entered a large library building and made my way to a stack of books, specifically three stacks along the left side. I walked to that stack and turned down it to seek out the last shelves near the wall, and I was attracted to a thin book with a yellow cover standing on its own on the very bottom shelf. There my dream always ended. A few days later, I found myself walking along a street I rarely walked along, and I looked up to find myself in front of a library building that I had never noticed before. On impulse, I entered the building and was immediately struck with a strong sense of having been there before. I felt a bit foolish and almost turned around and left, but I decided to walk slowly to exactly the third stack of books on the left, and I sought out the bottom shelf nearest the wall. Astoundingly, 
There I found a thin book with a yellow cover standing on its own. Needless to say, I signed up at that library and took the book home with me. It turned out that the book was called An Experiment with Time, published in 1927 and written by an English aeronautical engineer named J.W. Dunn. It's a copy of that very book that's my gift to you today. He went on to explain the central theory of the book, namely that events humans perceive in our waking hours as occurring over forward-moving periods of time are, in fact, occurring simultaneously, that there is no past and future, only the present, and only our human perceptions impose a sense of elapsing time onto events. But Dunn's theory was more than that. He believed that our dreams are not encumbered with the imposition of elapsing time. In other words, he believed that we dream in a jumble of past, present, and future events. To demonstrate his theory, Dunn asks us to cast aside our suspicions and disbeliefs and undertake a very simple experiment, to write down our dreams in detail as soon as possible upon awakening each morning. A few days later, we are to look back over the dreams and compare them, not in their totality, but rather in individual small details, with events that have actually transpired since the dream occurred. Dunn gives a number of examples in the book. Dreams, other than the most vivid ones, tend to dissipate very quickly. But with some discipline, particularly required to immediately write the dream down upon awakening, it does become easier to recall them. Within a week or so of reading an experiment with time, I had the knack of writing my dreams down, the most vivid being a nonsensical one in which I was sitting in the front row of chemistry class. In the class, our chemistry teacher introduced our headmaster as his assistant to demonstrate an amazing scientific principle, namely that hot water can be poured from a kettle into a pure white coffee cup. I woke up and dutifully scribbled the dream down. Two days later, I was unexpectedly called out of class to the headmaster's office, an office I had never entered during my three years at the school. In fact, I had never even met the headmaster. He was, to me, only a distant, godlike figure who hovered above the lives of us mere students. I was quite agitated as I approached his office, assuming I had done something for which I was to be punished, although I discovered later that our interaction was benign. He was pleased to congratulate me as the recipient of the history prize. His secretary apologized that the headmaster had just stepped out for a moment, but would be right back, and she asked that I be so kind as to sit in his inner sanctum until he returned. Of course, I obliged, and while sitting nervously, noticed just inches in front of me a simple object that had great significance, a pure white coffee cup filled with hot water, just like in the dream. Could it be a coincidence? Well, maybe. The odds of my having an interaction with the headmaster for the first time in my school life were very small, but not zero. And it's unusual to have hot water in a coffee cup, though hardly impossible. 
However, the confluence of the headmaster, the hot water, and the pure white coffee cup, all taken together as they were in the dream, was enough to convince me that there was definitely something to J.W. Dunn's theories, and that the subconscious mind maybe did have access to timeless information. In the years following, I would have other dreams that could seemingly only be explained as dreams of future events. But at the time, in 1964, I didn't need any further proof. I simply accepted the proposition that there was something wonderful and almost magical about the human mind and recognized that at least small elements of the immediate future could become known. The question was how to make use of this proposition in some practical way. In a way, I've spent the rest of my life testing and exploring that question. Actually, there are many more questions than that. If the future can be accessed now, does that mean there is no such thing as free will? That our actions are predetermined in some way? In which case, what is the point of deliberating on choices if the end result is already set? Or are there several different possible futures and different probabilities attached to each of them, akin to what is now called the multiverse theory proposed by some leading physicists, including Stephen Hawking? Does this mean we have some free will, but perhaps it is more limited than we believe? And so on. Each question spawns even more questions. To a 16-year-old boy, the practical question was the most tantalizing. Yes, the follow-on questions later led me to study philosophy in university and to make a hobby of reading books on quantum physics. Most immediately appealing, though, was figuring out if there was any way to access even a tiny portion of the hidden power of what I have come to think of as our timeless mind. Even back at age 16, it was immediately clear that trying to actually predict the future out of a jumble of seemingly random scenes in a dream was out of the question. There would be no magically foretelling the price of IBM shares the next day or the next winner of the Kentucky Derby. But at the very least, the old adage of sleeping on difficult decisions seemed very wise, giving a chance for the subconscious mind to come to solutions guided by some possible awareness of future tendencies. Was there anything else that could be done? Later the same year, I chanced upon a magazine article that suggested writing down your goals. I immediately wondered what would happen if you did exactly that, but in vivid enough detail to allow your subconscious mind to work with you, using its ability to know future tendencies to help subconsciously guide your actions in a way that helped fulfill the goals. The results were subtle for the longest while, but ultimately astonishing. You know from the earlier Cowboy Junkies chapter, that I have come to believe strongly in the power of writing down exactly what you want. This has been a lifelong belief that started when I read that magazine article so long ago. When I first tried writing down what I wanted myself, it seemed easy enough. 
My list started out, I'd like to make $250,000 a year. I'd like to have a number one song on the Billboard charts, win an Oscar and an Emmy, and have a number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. There's nothing wrong with starting out by aiming high, but my list was completely imbalanced. There was nothing about health. While I wanted a beautiful wife, there was nothing about real love or friendship, no mention of respect or honor or compassion. All in all, it was a limited and narcissistic list. Hardly surprising, perhaps, for a boy growing up in a North American culture that so strongly worships fame, money, and physical beauty. Still, I kept at it over the ensuing weeks and months, asking myself why I wanted a particular thing and what was behind it, and the list kept evolving, becoming deeper. As I said in that earlier chapter, the more you think about it, the money, the fame, the lifestyle aren't all that much of a driver. You start to realize health is important and the love and respect of friends, family, colleagues, and even people that you don't really know all that well are all tremendously important. I find it an absolutely overwhelmingly powerful exercise because if you can actually get through all the layers of self-deceit and rationalization and wish fulfillment and actually get down to the core of it all, then fix the core goals in abundant detail in your mind. Something amazing can happen. Your mind knows clearly what it is you are focusing on what you are really reaching toward. And all aspects of your conscious and subconscious mind can work together to move you toward your goals. Probing and finding your core goals requires effort, but it is not essentially a complex exercise. Anyone can do it. It doesn't require any special insight or intelligence. It simply requires persistence and an open, questioning mind. Is that all there is to it? At first, I thought so. I seemed to be making concrete progress, and new pathways seemed to be opening up for me. Believing in the timeless mind and fixing in that mind authentic, detailed goals were two important foundations. It wasn't until my late 20s that I realized something else was needed. There were successes, all right or at least viable inroads that could result in successes. By the age of 29, I had already helped found the Trent University Radio Service and the Trent newspaper, Arthur, partaken of the many adventures through Europe and Turkey with Christopher Ward, produced two feature films, written songs, secured a law degree, and started an entertainment law practice with George Miller. But there was a frantic quality to what I was doing. There seemed to be so many things going on at once in my mind, so many thoughts competing for attention, that I started to wonder if the whole process of arming the timeless mind with clearly defined goals was actually being sabotaged by the mind's own frantic activity to achieve the goals. I was achieving some intermediate goals, but the deeper goals 
were still elusive. Looking back now, I realize that while I accomplished a lot, it was for entirely the wrong reason. I wasn't striving for true inner satisfaction, but rather flailing away as if there was some inner pain or loss, perhaps arising from the early years of feeling bullied and alone, that could be assuaged by accomplishments. Then I discovered meditation. I had heard of meditation years before. My heroes, the Beatles, had traveled to Rishikesh in northern India to study Transcendental Meditation, TM, with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and later on the Beach Boys had done the same. Notwithstanding that it had attracted celebrities, it sounded pretty weird. Interesting, but weird. Until one day, a friend came into my office and breathlessly announced that she had taken a TM course and it had changed her life. She seemed buoyantly happy and energized and couldn't stop talking about how different and wonderful she felt, to the point that I was very skeptical about what she was really feeling. Still, she was insistent that I try the TM course, and I figured, why not? It couldn't hurt, and maybe it would help. That was almost 40 years ago, and I've been meditating every day since. The big thing that I discovered about meditation is that it helps filter out the franticness and the distracting thoughts that had become inherent in my mind at that time. The incessant, silent talking to myself was significantly reduced. I didn't find the euphoria that my friend had found, but I did find that peaceful feelings came easier and irritations came less. I'm not here to sell TM itself. There are many different methods of meditation and mindfulness, as it is sometimes called, and I have no knowledge that any one method is superior to any other. But I'll describe a bit about the TM experience so that you can get a feel for what it is. You practice TM twice a day for 15 to 20 minutes. During each session, you sit in a relaxed way with your eyes closed and focus your attention on a mantra. Your mantra is given to you by a TM instructor and you are requested to keep the mantra confidential. I have honored that request by never revealing my mantra, but I will describe it for you simply as a word of two syllables that doesn't seem to mean anything, at least not to me and not in the English language. If your attention is drawn away from the mantra, as it inevitably is, you don't try to force it back, but rather gently return to the mantra and allow the competing thoughts to drift away. That's it. There is an official TM course that teaches the nuances of the practice, and I do recommend that course, but what I have described is really the essence. You give your mind a relaxing vacation for 15 to 20 minutes twice a day. There are lots of other books, articles, and studies on the benefits of meditation and mindfulness, so I'm not going to proselytize. I simply assert that it changed my life profoundly, enabled me to accept adversity and challenges much more positively, and helped me to concentrate on my priorities much more clearly. 
I've been asked a number of times whether meditation makes you boring. Accepting everything as it is, just zoning out from the real world. Of course, the answer is a resounding no. I've been more energized, challenged, intrigued, and passionate since I started meditating. Yes, I now just let go of small stuff that previously might have made me irritated or distracted, but that leaves more time to focus on the big stuff. Since I began meditating, life settled down for me. I got married, had a son, became a partner in a large law firm, and then started my new life as an executive producer for Degrassi, the Juno Awards, and other shows and ventures. And on top of it all, I had a great time doing it. I credit meditation with making that all possible, for helping my dreams become reality, while keeping me from burning out in the process, for keeping it all in perspective, and keeping it all tremendous fun. This has been the final episode of Whatever It Takes, the podcast, which has been produced by Elizabeth Baird and featured Stephen Stone, along with yours truly, Christopher Ward. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and maybe buy the Whatever It Takes book, which is available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats at your favorite bookstore or digital platform.